This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. So last week we kind of opened up this idea that as Christians... One of the tenets of being a Christian is that we submit ourselves to the authority of the Word of God, and it stands over us. And so our worldview is built by Scripture. How we act in different situations is guided by Scripture. Who God is is taught to us through Scripture. It's not an invention of our own. It is it is God's self-revelation through his word. And, and so whenever we have hard questions, we go to scripture to find those answers. And we're going to be doing this probably for the summer. And you guys get to play a part in what questions we tackle. And if you don't have one of those sheets, come and get one and you can check them off. But we're still tackling those questions that we had in Sarah's question box at the snack shop. And so tonight is, why did Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me when he was on the cross? How can I tell if I'm truly saved? And what is the most damaging thing to the Christian faith? And if we happen to have time, I don't think we will, uh, we'll tackle um, how can we spot false teachers? And when did eternity start? How could God always have been? So let's begin by taking a look at what this question is dealing with. Matthew 27 is a story of Jesus on the cross. So Jesus has been crucified. He's hanging on the cross. There's a sign over his head that says, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. People are passing by. They're mocking him. He's hung between other criminals because he's dying the death of a criminal. And let's go to verse 45 of Matthew 27. Now, in, from the sixth hour, uh, which is noon, so the brightest time of day, in the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That's three o'clock. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani. And that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, some bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling on Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, let's wait and see whether Elijah is going to come and save him. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So what is going on? Is Jesus crying out that the father has separated himself from the son? Is Jesus so under sin, having become sin for us, that the father is ashamed of him, that the father turns his back On his son here, is there a division that takes place? Has God forsaken Christ on the cross? That's the question that we're dealing with. And it's a question that actually has big implications. Because if we answer this wrong, it actually starts to unravel other tenets of our our faith. So first of all, the, the easiest place to start is that Jesus is not coming up with this on his own. Thomas, Aiden, are y'all staying with me? Awesome. He is actually quoting a psalm from the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 22. And we can go there. You can leave your finger here in Matthew if you want and jump back to Psalm 22. Now, in Jewish culture, there was a practice 
called Kesher. Kesher literally means connection. And it was the idea that you would, you would quote the beginning of something and it takes your mind back to remember all of it. And so Jesus is, is doing this kind of rabbinical, this Hebrew practice. He is quoting the first verse of Psalm 22, but he has an intention behind it. He intends for us to remember, those who have studied the Psalms, his hearers, to, to think of the whole Psalm, not just the first verse. And surely, we definitely hear the weight of sin. We feel what's going on. And we're going to unpack a little bit about what's going on right now. But looking at the Psalm in its entirety actually has a lot of more weight than just what's on the surface. So let's look at Psalm 22, verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a Psalm of David. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Let's, let's get into David's head right now. This is David. He, is, he must be under some sort of extreme pressure. Maybe he's running from his, his own son trying to kill him, Absalom. Maybe this is another time in David's life when his enemies were surrounding him. And he's writing this. And we can hear David's heart cry. And he's crying out to the God who has promised to protect him. The God who has promised to always be near to him. That would save him. That has put a calling on his life to be king. And he's opening this with, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Verse two, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Now let's jump forward a little bit. You guys can come and read the whole psalm another time. This is, it's a beautiful psalm, and you should. You should study it. But for time's sake, let's jump forward. Take a look at how this psalm plays a bigger role than just in David's life. It begins to connect with Christ's life. Jump forward to verse seven. All who see me mock me. Well, what's just happened in the verses before what we read? They're passing by Jesus on the cross. They're wagging their heads at him. And they're saying, how can he, if he, he says he can save other people, how can he not save himself? They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in his Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Let's jump to verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint and my heart is like wax. It is melting within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd. My tongue sticks to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of the earth. What has Jesus just done? What happened? He cries out and what do they do? They get a reed and they put sour wine on it and run to him because they think he's thirsty. Let's keep going a little bit more. Oh, no, let's keep reading. For dogs, verse 16, dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Is this starting to sound very, very familiar? David is writing this from the anguish of his heart, and he doesn't even know that he's being anointed by the Holy Spirit to be prophetic, that this psalm is going to bring a deeper meaning to what's happening to this future king, but not a king of Israel, but a king of the earth who's going to experience this kind of agony and worse. Let's take a look at verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off, you, or oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. And I think we begin to uncover 
our answer to this question. Let's jump forward to verse 24. For he, talking about God, has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. Now we have to understand that for David, this is David going from what he's experiencing at the beginning of feeling forsaken, and where does David come as he is pouring out his feelings? He comes to remember God's promises, and he recognizes a reality that God has not hidden his face from him. Definitely keep, keep reading and studying the psalm. It's beautiful. But I'd like to kind of dig into theology a little bit. We know from Deuteronomy 6.4, every day the Jews would quote Deuteronomy 6.4, and it is, O Lord, or O Yahweh, our Lord, the Lord is one. He is unified. There is perfect oneness in the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but perfect unity. Indivisible, one essence, one glory, oneness. John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. So if we were to say that God has forsaken Christ on the cross, we're actually challenging the, the understanding of the Trinity, of the oneness, of Jesus saying, I and my Father are one. It can't be divided. It's indivisible. It's one. So what is taking place at the cross? What has brought Jesus to the despair that he is at? This is a verse worth highlighting and memorizing. It is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It is towards the middle of the New Testament. Second Corinthians 5.21, what is happening? What's taking place on the cross? Darkness has moved in on Christ. Yes, he is feeling the torture, the, the, the greatest hate that humanity can pour out on him physically, but what's going on spiritually? What is transpiring between he and the Father right now? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Something is happening on the cross that's never happened before. Jesus is actually keenly aware of God's presence. He's experiencing horrible distress, agony, and loneliness that we can't even comprehend because God's presence, which up until now, from eternity past to this moment, Jesus has lived in perfect favor, infinite love with the Father. And God's Mercy and love and favor has been exchanged for wrath and hate. God is pouring out the punishment of sin on his son. Love was exchanged for hatred. Favor was exchanged for punishment. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. And for the first time in his existence, 
he felt the guilt and weight and the hellish wrath of God for sin. Our sin and guiltiness were counted against him. Another prophetic chapter that you can read is Isaiah 53. It is keenly explicit about what transpired on the cross. Let's look at it. Isaiah chapter 53. Again, study this whole chapter. It's beautiful. It goes from Jesus' youth, his torture and crucifixion, his mocking, his being wrongly condemned, his death, his burial, his resurrection, all within a prophetic chapter 600 years before Jesus walked the earth. Right here in Isaiah 53, it says this about Jesus. Verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like, all we, like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're the ones, we're the sinners, we're the ones that, that rebelled against God and Jesus took our punishment out of his great love. This is called justification. There's three levels of justification. This is worth remembering. Imagine you commit some crime. Let's say you, uh, I don't know, you steal something. So you're caught, you're guilty, you go to court and the, and the judge says your punishment is six months in jail. Doesn't matter if, how accurate it is, follow me for the example. Now, at the end of six months, when you walk out, has your punishment been paid? Not a trick question. Yeah. When you walk out, are you still guilty of having committed that crime? Yes. When we look at what Jesus did on the cross before God, Jesus takes our punishment, but he also becomes our guilt. He feels the weight of our guiltiness, becomes our guiltiness, so that when God looks at you, he no longer sees the guilty, rebellious sinner. He sees a punish-free not just punished free, but as if you had never sinned. You are exchanging the righteousness of Christ for your righteousness and your guilt on him. And so level one takes our punishment. Level two takes our guilt. Level three is that it says that we receive his righteousness. So not only does God see you as you have never done anything wrong, but he sees you as always have, having done what was perfectly right. And so you are merited Jesus's righteousness, his inheritance, his grace and love from the Father. That is justification, being made right before God. And Jesus did that for us on the cross. He carried that. And in this moment of, of agony that we can't wrap our minds around, he cries out 
to remind us of this psalm of a king who was grieved and feeling forsaken and a king who remembers God's promises and a king that remembers he's never forsaken. Did that all make sense? Cool, cool. So on the cross, why did Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Question two, how can I tell if I'm truly saved? Ah, oh, this is so beautiful. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Turn your Bibles to Romans. We used this verse last week, Romans chapter 10, when we were dealing with a Christian committing suicide. And we'll again ask the same question. What makes the decision? What is the deciding factor between heaven or hell? It wasn't suicide. So how can I know if I'm truly saved? Step one, Romans chapter 10, verse nine. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. Hey, hey, we know what justification means now. Justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So question number one, how can you tell if you're saved? Have you repented and believe in Jesus? And do you believe that he died for you? Question two, do you trust in God's promises? He promised salvation to all those who believed in him. John chapter five, verse 24 says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So we're gonna spend the rest of our time in 1 John. This is not the gospel of John. This is way in the back, almost to Revelation. 1 John, if you're ever questioning your salvation, read the book of 1 John. It gives you some great pointers. 1 John, we're going to start in chapter 2. Do you have a growing taste for godliness and obedience to him? Chapter 2, verse 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him. Knowing is salvation. Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, John 16, this is salvation that they know you. So by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are of him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So are we growing? Are we being sanctified in a taste for godliness and a desire to be obedient to God? We should have a change in our lifestyle. I don't know who said this, but it's a great little saying. If you is what you was, then you ain't. If your life looks the same as it did before you gave your life to Jesus, then you may want to question where you gave your life to Jesus because he changes us. He gives us a hunger that we didn't have before. We begin to hate what is sinful and begin to love what is good. So, are you growing for a taste in godliness and obedience? Number two, 
Let's just turn over to the next chapter, 1 John chapter 3. We're starting in verse 4. Do you have a growing, I love what they said at camp, do you have a growing gag reflex for worldliness and sin? Chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning." So this is, does not mean that you will be perfect and stop sinning altogether because you gave your life to Christ. But you will have a desire for godliness and a gag reflex for sin and worldliness. The way they described it so well at camp is that you see a movie trailer and when it doesn't line up with what you know is true, you have a gag reflex against it. When people are sitting around talking and you hear that God is, is, is shamed Instead of honored, you get have a gag reflex about it. When you hear the humor change, you have a gag reflex about it. That what is sinful, what is wrong, what is worldly begins to affect you differently because your love for God has changed. So are you growing in a taste for godliness and obedience? Are you growing in a gag reflex for worldliness? Have you repented and believed that Jesus died for you? And finally, what do you love? Turn one more chapter over, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Next week, we're going to talk about a definition for love. This just doesn't mean big feelings. But we'll cover that next week. But what do you love? Are you growing in a love for God? Are you growing in a love for the people around us? That's the greatest commandment. Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So how can I tell if I'm saved? Have you repented and believed in Jesus? Do you trust his promises? Do you have a growing taste for obedience? Do you have a growing gag reflex for worldliness? And what and who do you love? And I've got good news. Our salvation is not living up to a standard. Jesus lived up to the standard so that he can be our representative before God and we are seen as his righteousness just like we talked about in 2 Corinthians 5.21. So our salvation isn't actually based on anything we get right. Our salvation is based on coming to God and repenting and saying, I can't do anything right apart from you. It has to be you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Third, what is the most damaging thing to the Christian faith? And this, is, uh, and this answer goes for the most damaging thing in a Christian or a Christian's faith and for the Christian faith as a whole around the world. Hey, Thomas, do you want to move? Is there another chair that would suit you better? Aiden, you can. One of y'all want to, want to pick? Y'all can rock, paper, scissors for all I care. Does anyone have a really stinky shoe we can put between them or something? 
Thank you, Thomas. Good man. All right. What is the most damaging thing to the Christian faith? And I think that you could probably make an argument for a few different things, but what seems to stick out in Scripture the most is that it is a lack of the fear of the Lord. And so I want to unpack a little bit about what fear of the Lord is. I believe the most damaging thing to the Christian faith is a lack of the fear of the Lord. So many times, fear of the Lord is downplayed. People will say, well, fear of the Lord just means that you have respect for God. It doesn't mean you like run away from him. You just have a lot of respect. And I think that the, the biblical definition is a lot deeper than that. Uh, the word fear in Hebrew is uh, yirah, which means terror, fear. Um, so it, it's more than respect. There's something deeper going on here. And so let's take a survey real quick of people that encountered God and how they reacted to him. Were they like, what's up, God? Yes, sir, I respect you. Let's, let's see how they do this. And, and you don't have to turn to all these places, uh, but you can jot them down if you want to look at them later. Genesis 17.3, when, Abra- when Abraham encountered God, he fell on his face. Exodus 3.6, when God appeared in the burning bush, Moses hid his face. Exodus 20, the people, when they encountered God, were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. In Isaiah 6, um, Isaiah cries out, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm of a people of unclean lips. I am undone. Woe is me. Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel falls on his face, and it says that the Spirit of God had to lift him back onto his feet because he couldn't stand. Job chapter 4 Um, It says that God visits him in a vision. And this is his response. Dread came upon me and trembling, which made my bones shake. The hair of my flesh stood up. Daniel chapter eight. Daniel says, I was frightened and fell on my face. Matthew 17, whenever the disciples see Jesus transfigured, it says they fell on their face and were terrified. John in Revelation chapter one says that he fell down at his feet like a dead man. So this is deeper than just respect. There is a quaking that happens in someone's bones as a response to the awe and mighty omnipotence of sovereign God of all the universe. The God who judges, the God who loves, the God who is just. All of these people are sharply aware of God's incomprehensible magnitude of his piercing knowledge, of his infinite holiness, and of his hatred for sin. And they stood before God, weak and exposed and sinful. And Jesus says this. Jesus, you know, the lubby-dubby, you know, fluffy Jesus that everyone paints him as. Jesus says this in Matthew 10, verse 28. He says, don't fear those who can kill the body, and, but not kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Like, Jesus doesn't play softball with the idea of fearing God. So it's more than respect. It is a a trembling at the infinite gap between his majesty and our unworthiness, between his power and our frailty, and between his all-sufficiency and our desperation. So I wanted to come up with a one-line definition of fear of the Lord. And we're going to get to the beautiful side of this in a minute, but I want to bring weight to this a biblical weight to who God is and who we stand when we're in comparison to him. So I'm pulling from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29, that it says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
So it is a response to God's being a consuming fire. We respond with reverence and awe. And then in Deuteronomy 10, let's turn there together. This is Deuteronomy 10. This is the fifth book of the Bible. So go back to the beginning. Cut your Bible in half, cut the first half in half, and you should be in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, is where we'll start. It says this, And now Israel, what does the Lord, it's all caps, so it's the name of God, what does Yahweh, your God, require of you? But to fear the Lord, your God, and to walk in his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord, your God, with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So what do we see here? What does fearing the Lord look like? Walking in his ways, loving him, serving him with all of your heart and with your soul, and keeping his commandments. And then let's jump to verse 20 of, of the same chapter. It says, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. So if I boiled it down, this is what I think a definition of the fear of the Lord would be. A reverence and awe of God, which compels obedience, love, and worship. A reverence and awe of God, as coming from Hebrews 12, which compels obedience, love, and worship. And that's Deuteronomy chapter 10. A reverence and awe of God, which compels obedience, love, and worship. Now, Contrary to what this sounds like, fear of the Lord actually draws us to him, not away from him. There's a great book that I just learned about today. I've, been, I've learned about it from Pastor Tim, and it's called The, um, the Joy of Fearing God. And it's like, how do those two work together? Well, it works together like this a little bit, if I can explain it. We know that godly grief brings us to repentance. It's 2 Corinthians 7.10. I mentioned back in Exodus that when the people saw and encountered God, the people with Moses, that they feared and trembled and they stood afar away. That's Exodus chapter 20. And if you can just listen if you want to, I don't want you to be lost turning pages, but this is Exodus chapter 20, and it's a, it's a turning point in the book of Exodus when they see God's presence on the mountain and they're terrified. And this is Exodus 20, verse 18. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, listen to this, Do not fear. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Do not fear. So let's keep reading. Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So he's saying the fear of the Lord actually drives away another kind of fear and moves us to not sin. Now the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So the people encounter the presence of God and they back away. Moses encounters God and gets closer. We have a real 
devil who really likes to twist what is of God into something that is anti-God. Our devil will take something honorable like hard work and he will twist it into greed. Our devil will take something beautiful like marital sex and he'll twist it into lust. Fear of the Lord has been twisted by the devil as the spirit of fear. Something that drives us away, that makes us run, that makes us scared. But a fear of the Lord draws us near. Think about it this way. The spirit of fear says, you are unworthy. Run, get as far away as you can because you're not worthy. But the fear of the Lord says, you are not worthy. Come closer to the God who loves you. Draw near to the throne of grace. Come to the Savior that died for you and took your place. Worship at his feet, who you can never pay back. But he did it anyway out of his grace and his love. Do you see the difference between the fear of the Lord and the spirit of fear? Satan wants you to run from the God of your salvation. But Jesus comes to offer a holy trembling before the God who loves us. What happens when there's a lack of the fear of the Lord? When there's a lack of the fear of the Lord, sin increases. Romans chapter, nine, chapter 3, verse 9 is a key chapter in discussing our sin apart from God. Romans chapter 3, verse 9 says this. And, and to give you some context, Paul has been writing about how evil the rest of the world out there is. And all the Jews are like, yeah, they're evil, they're terrible. Oh my goodness, yeah. Preach, preacher. And then Paul takes the focus, the the scope, and he swings it around and actually puts it on them now. And he says this, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Any better than all those people out there, those evil, terrible sinners? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No one's getting out of this. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. Key verse, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So what happens when there's a lack of the fear of the Lord? Sin ramps up and increases. People will begin to believe if there is no judgment, then we have nothing to hold us accountable. We can do all the sin we want. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian back during World War II. He was actually part of a plot to take down Hitler. He was a spy. He was a pastor. Really interesting character. And he says this. He says, and he's talking about whenever we're feeling temptation, 
So imagine the last time you felt tempted towards something, whether it's lust or greed or vanity or whatever. Imagine that. At this moment, this moment of temptation, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality. And only desire, the only desire that's left is the desire of the creature. Satan does not here fill us with a hatred of God. He fills us with a forgetfulness of God. Where there's a lack of the fear of the Lord, sin increases. Second, where there's a lack of the fear of the Lord, God's wrath increases. As sin is ramping up, God's wrath against sin is ramping up. Turn back two chapters to Romans chapter 1. We're actually going to work through this next week with a lot more detail, but we're just going to read the chapter 1, verse 18. Just one verse, and you can go read more later. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Wait a minute. Who is that? Who is unrighteous before God? Verse chapter 3 says, everyone apart from God, apart from the blood of Jesus, is under the wrath of God. So a healthy fear of the Lord affects our view of Scripture. If we have a fear of the Lord, we'll honor Scripture as our authority. A healthy fear of the Lord moves us to obedience A healthy fear of the Lord makes us pass on our faith, whether it's through evangelism or teaching our kids. A healthy fear of the Lord makes our worship genuine. A healthy fear of the Lord isn't isn't about trying to impress God with the things that we can do. Why? Because we know who we are. We know that we have nothing when we come before Almighty God. So we're not trying to impress Him. The best we have is filthy rags, Isaiah says. So we come to Him in genuine worship that He is worthy of all our praise and honor. And if we have a fear of the Lord, we'll fight for holiness. So how can we grow in the fear of the Lord? And here's just a couple things before we break. Our last place, Psalm chapter 86. Cut your Bible in half. You'll be in Psalms, Proverbs, or Isaiah. If you're in Isaiah, go left. Psalm chapter 86. So how can we grow in the fear of the Lord. Psalm chapter 86, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. So what do we see in this one little tiny verse? We have the writer is in prayer. He's praying. And he's praying that the Lord would teach him. He's praying that he would walk in truth. He's praying that the Lord would unite him to himself. No, not the author to the author, but that the author to God. Lord, unite me to you. This makes me think of Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 16, or maybe 17. When he's praying, he says, Lord, unite them as one, as we are one. Unite them to us that we would be united with God so that we would fear his name. So right here in this one little verse, there's prayer that we have to be taught by God himself. We can't muster it up on our own. We can't muster up emotions. Emotions are not a good litmus test for how we actually are before God. 
but we pray that the Lord would teach us himself. We walk in obedience. What does it say? That I would walk in your truth. That's obedience language. We're not walking in our standard of what I think is right, and I'm trying to live up to my standard. I'm trying to take God's standard and live up to his standard and in being in obedience to him. And then finally, we're unified with him. We're we're in prayer, we're studying his word, we're submitting ourselves, we're being obedient, and the Lord shares his heart with us and begins to replace a heart of stone with his heart, a beating heart that beats for him, and we become more and more unified with him every day. So I believe the most dangerous thing for the Christian faith, whether it's in an individual or across the world, is a lack of the fear of the Lord. Think about all of the preachers that are out there that are preaching gospels that are wrong, that are not biblical, that are all about man and how man can have a better life because of God. If they genuinely feared God, their teachings would line up with God's words. That our salvation, oh man, I've got a great first word on them. I should have written it down. Anyway, our salvation is not just for us. Our salvation is a means to an end that we would glorify God and that we would bring him glory in the world. I've got a great verse for it. Sorry, guys. You can come find me afterwards and I'll track it down. So those are the three questions for tonight. And I will let you know by social media what question we're tackling for next week. It's, it's going to be a good one. It's going to take a lot of research. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Elevate. I thank you for your word that gives us sound answers. And I pray, Lord, that I pray, Lord, that I answered your questions in a way that pleased you. And Lord, wherever I'm wrong, I open myself up to being wrong, that you would correct me. I thank you, Lord, that you gave your son, Jesus, that you died willingly out of love for us, so that you would become our sin pay our punishment, become our guilt, and you would give us your righteousness. Lord, let the weight of that sink in just a tiny bit tonight. How can we respond, Lord? But with obedience, with love, and with worship. May we fear you every day with our words, with our thoughts, with our actions, with our whole hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.